Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and today is all about fermentation, and the whole show is from my home territory on the beautiful Sunshine Coast of British Columbia. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome to your Friday, or whenever it is that you happen to be streaming or downloading the show. I'm really happy that you've joined me here for the Chef Demoni podcast. This show is all about people who love food, and it's about the stories that these people can share with the rest of us. This week, I'm going to keep the introduction short because we've got two fantastic guests today, and I really want to get to the interviews as quickly as I can. So, the Sunshine Coast of British Columbia, that's where today's interviews took place. If you haven't been or you don't know, the Sunshine Coast is a really, really beautiful spot. I'm biased, I suppose, because I live there. My wife and I have been there for just over two years. But I think that's objectively true as well. It's a really beautiful spot. Just about a 40-minute ferry ride from the big city, to us anyway, of Vancouver. So today's first interview took place in a bakery in my hometown of Gibson's and the second in a cidery a little further up the coast just outside of the city of Seashelt. Now, what do these two interviews have in common? Well, they are both about fermentation, as you'll hear, and both guests today have really outstanding English accents too. So coming up a little later in the show is my talk with Nick Ferrer of Brickers Cider in Seashelt, and I'm going to have more to say about Brickers and about my talk with Nick after our first interview. But the first interview is with Paul Haldane of Coastal Cultures. Now, Paul has got this great small business startup, and he is producing some delicious fermented products. The one that I know best is his water kefir. It's similar in many ways to kombucha, which may be a more familiar drink. And you will hear in the interview coming up with Paul terms like SCOBY. That'll be familiar to you if you drink kombucha. Uh, if not, that stands for a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. And the SCOBY is responsible for the fermentation in kombucha making. But in water kefir, which is the product that Paul makes at Coastal Cultures, it's a little bit different. They use something called water kefir grains, and I'm going to let Paul explain all about that. We also get into a talk about some great cocktails that you can make with Paul's water kefir, including one that he put together using a gin local to the Sunshine Coast. We talk about naturally fermented pickles. We're going to go into Paul's Eureka moment with sauerkraut. And Paul is a chef as well, and he is going to describe his recipe for sauerkraut. So that is definitely worth a listen. And speaking of being a chef, we talk about Paul's early days in the restaurant business. And he went through, let's say, some challenging kitchen environments growing up in England. So Paul's got some really interesting thoughts to share on changing and improving working conditions in restaurants. We also get into a related notion, which is restaurant economics, and you're going to hear a really interesting approach to pricing that Paul tried at a restaurant that he owned in Gibson's. In any case, that is enough from me. Let's go to our first interview now. Here's my talk with Paul Haldane of Coastal Cultures. Listen, Paul, thanks very much for meeting up here on a, what turns out to be a lovely Saturday morning at, uh, at Wheatberries on the Coast. 
Indeed. It's a jolly nice day. Well, I want to get into your background, have you take me through some restaurants that you've worked at and, and get your thoughts on, on the restaurant business generally. But let's start where you are right now, which is coastal cultures and yep. fermentation, because that's a big piece that I want this episode to be about. So tell us, what is coastal cultures all about? And, and I know you've started with one ferment, you're moving in, and that's the water kefir grains, Yeah. and you're moving into sauerkraut. But please tell me and tell the listeners, what's it all about? Yeah, so Coastal Cultures is a little thing I just started this year. When did we get going? Sort of May, May, June kind of time. We've got into full production, I guess. And making currently three flavours of water kefir, which is a fermented probiotic beverage similar to kombucha, but with no tea. Um, the cultures in it, in theory, are more healthy. They're more probiotic rich. They're less enzymatic. Enzy- how do you say that? Enzymatic? Word? Enzymatic, that's the one I'm looking for. Um, less enzymes, but more actual healthy bacteria. I'm currently getting it tested now to see which ones we have and what kind of um, amounts. Uh, so we've got three flavours, which is um, orange cranberry, rhubarb and ginger, and strawberry and lemon. And I'm trying to work on an apple one and thinking about a mango lime. Yeah, we're currently at Persephone and kegs. Uh, we've got a keg out of Bricker's Cidery. And then we've got bottles kind of up and down the coast. I'm just hitting seashell. I went there last week and I'm just in talks and trying to sell it to people. No one really knows what kefir is yet or water kefir. They know, oh, it's the milk stuff. But no, it's not the milk stuff. This is made with organic sugar and water. And we ferment that out. And then we add fruit to it and let that ferment again. And then it's naturally conditioned in the bottle. Um, So it's that learning process. Great cocktail mixer as well. That's why my restaurant thing is like get on the on the cocktails right okay so let's back up one stage because and and this I learned from your website because I and probably like many others uh, thought it was a fermented grain product uh, oh, at the beginning at but it's but it's not at all right no, it's they, just no yeah. Yeah, kefir grains they're just called grains because they look kind of like grains and they're a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast a scoby similar to what you would have in kombucha but instead of a big round disc there's tiny little grains that go from anywhere from like a millimeter up to maybe I've got some that are probably half an inch, so they grow, and as you produce more, they grow more, because nature of the beast. Um, so yeah, it's, it's uh, dry, not sugar-free, but very low in sugar, and the sugar's been pre-digested by bacteria, so it's a better way to ingest sugar. And how does the process start? You'd mentioned what, I think, a two-stage fermentation process, so it starts yeah. with sugar? Yeah, so sugar. I use organic cane sugar, yeah. as raw as I can get it and then dissolve that in hot water, mix it with cold water, chuck the grains in, I do a little bit of lemon and some other little things to, because the grains need uh, certain mineral content to help them grow and survive and thrive. So I do a, usually a two day ferment on the grains with the sugar water, it gets strained off and then put on to quite a lot of fruit because you need quite a lot of fruit for the flavor um, and that goes for another day um, and then it gets strained off again and then it gets bottled and bottle conditioned and or keg conditioned. So I'm doing kegs as well, so they get keg conditioned. And the difference, the separation between, or the, the difference from kombucha, is so kombucha has, has a tea component traditionally, is that right? Yeah, so kombucha, yeah. the grain or the scoby in kombucha needs caffeine and or, or the tannins in tea, I think it is. I've never made kombucha, my wife used to make it. But yeah, it needs the tannins in tea. Um, there's a lot more acetobacter and coconobacter, which are the acid producing or vinegar producing bacteria or acid the higher in acid stronger acid flavor than lactobacillus there's a little bit in kefir grains but not as much uh, they were kept in check by the lactobacillus which for now we'll call lab because it will come up quite a bit so the lacto 
Well, sour stuff, that's usually what you get most sour beers uh, and kettle sour beers is lacto. Usually the brekkie is what most breweries use. Um, and they'll they'll get soured and then they'll get fermented on yeast, whereas mine does it all in one hit, as it were. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. And and uh, tell us about the cocktails. What would you recommend you mix these, uh, <laughs> these yeah. flavors with? Yeah, so the cocktails, I, the first one I did for the missus was uh, I used the 101 gin. And I modelled some basil, a little bit extra lemon, and then the strawberry lemon kefir, and give it a quick shake, and that was handsome. Uh, I did the rhubarb and ginger with some, um, was it rum? It was rum or tequila? A tequila and lime, and rhubarb and ginger. That was good. Yeah, I did, like I pretty much just put booze in it if you want a hard drink, and it tastes good. <laughs> it tastes good. It's the easiest cocktail to make. What are the advantages? Uh, let's talk a little bit about the the health components of fermented products and yep. then I want to shift into some others that you're looking at but what, what drew you to fermented products generally? Well I've been fermenting in restaurants and whatnot for years um, so when I had Nova Kitchen I did ferments there so um, from sauerkraut to local any vegetables I just chuck them in a bag with some salt and have some real pickles as opposed to commercial pickles uh, or pickled vegetables and yeah health wise they're just my, all mine are raw um unpasteurized so they have to be kept in the fridge they will carry on fermenting they will get sour if you leave them out on the counter they will grow mold um usually good molds it's a thing called calm yeast which comes on the top of most ferments like sauerkraut which is absolutely fine to eat but just doesn't look very appealing but usually skim it off um doesn't happen in the process uh, but yeah health benefits are things like boosted immunity great for your gut health so um we'll just say that for now uh say no more say no more <laughs> Yeah, they're just uh, the health benefits are still in studies. I read a study linking gut health to brain function recently and Alzheimer's and yeah, a lot of stuff. But I'm not going to say what they are because you know I'm not going to tell you it's a cure all for everything. But it definitely makes you feel a lot healthier in general. Yeah, okay, I think. And, and when you talk about real pickles, I want to get your thoughts on that on adding salt to raw veg and not doing much more to it. I was I was just speaking with Jesse McCleary at uh, Pilgrim Restaurant, yeah, 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 on Galliano, and, and they do it. Yeah, yeah, ton of ton of fermenting. Uh, I do a little bit, but my fermenting is basically mostly limited to sourdough bread. That's my current uh, current kick. Jesse was talking about just taking veg scraps from you know from prep yep. and vacuum sealing them with one percent two percent salt yep. and just doing a dry just a dry ferment. So yep. were you doing something similar and and how does that work with vegetables? Why does that produce a, a a natural or a better pickle? So naturally fermented pickles would be like if you were doing yeah any vegetable say so the dry ones I did beets like that so the salt will draw out liquid and produce its own brine. The salt's pretty much there as a buffer for the first week to stave off any bad bacteria. So all you're trying to do is the natural bacteria that's in the vegetable. So you always want to leave the peels on, for instance, because they'll have yeasts. And lactobacillus, it's on your hands as well, so you wash your hands, but you don't have to wear gloves, unlike some people think. This is in restaurants, I do now, because it's on a bigger scale. But um, So they will feed the bacteria will start multiplying they will feed off the sugars and the starches in the vegetable um, and produce lactic acid bacteria and you'll usually get acetobacter which is the vinegar one as well um, sometimes cucinobacter there's many men I think there's I don't even know how many hundreds of strains of lacto there are um, there's a few other ones that I can't pronounce there's loads of them microbiology is super cool I'm just learning this as I go it's like the more you find out it's like this is so cool 
So yeah, you basically get it's a different flavour profile. It's not just sugar and vinegar boiled up and thrown onto pickled veg, which is how a lot of places have done it, and I've done it many, many times. And they make great pickles. Um, you put your pickling spice in, and it's great. Uh, but fermented, it's just it's just different. It's got a bit of funk to it. The acidity is more mellow. Sometimes, if you let them go for ages, then it gets super tart. Yeah, you can usually keep a good crunch. Whereas sometimes when you do the other way, you don't always get a good crunch. Uh, they last forever. It's the way that we've been doing this for thousands of years. Just coming back into like now, I'd say since the 2000s is like the fermenting kick. But yeah, people have been fermenting vegetables for millennia, as it were. So why did we stop? Who knows? But it's super healthy. It's a great way of preserving all your spoils from the summer. Leave them in the fridge. We've got them pickled veg all winter. Uh, yeah, and away you go. Yeah, tell me about the tell me a little bit more about the salt because I think I know from your your website that you're you're toying with or thinking about a saltless I've got uh, sauerkraut. Yeah, yeah so some it's in this done. So is that just a little more finicky, or you have to be more careful because you're oh, exposed kind of to the? Secret. Oh, okay. Well, let's hear it. Uh, so I'm also not just doing at the minute. I've got three types of sauerkraut. Um, I've got two made. The other one's not made yet. Waiting on labels and that jazz. So I've got a dill pickle sauerkraut uh, made with cucumbers from uh, Sunny Coast Farms, which is just here in the Sunshine Coast in Gibsons. And then I've got uh, original, so dill pickle original, and I'll do a beet and red cabbage. So instead of using salt, I had this like eureka moment. So when I started this, I did some natural ferments and I did the red cabbage and beet one naturally. I'm like, this is great. I was driving down the street. I'm like, well, I have water kefir, which is it's plain water kefir is full of lactobacillus it's full of yeast it's all the goodness that you're trying to get from the cabbage yeast anyway why don't I just try and chuck raw water kefir with no fruit onto my cabbage and see what happens did a little bit of research it's been done before so I was like damn it I thought damn I was a real trendsetter but not quite and yeah had a go and it's freaking awesome to say the least I think it gets super sour super quick really healthy fermentation within about 10 hours it was bobbing away usually with sauerkraut you do a 30 day ferment because the first week not really much happens it starts kicks off there's one bacteria that kicks in on like the three week part which kind of mellows everything out and then you let it sort of sit in the fridge for another week my mum did all that within a week and it was kind of done I'm like well, it just tastes the same as it did two days ago I'm like ah uh. so I fridged it and it's been sitting in the fridge mellowing out for another it's been in there for probably two weeks three weeks now um, so now it's, it's ready for market I just got to on labels and get going so <laughs> labels and jars and yeah all that jazz okay okay what would you recommend for people that want to try fermentation for the first time what's a what's a sauerkraut is the, the way to go yeah, okay it's totally easy love my recipe or general consensus is two percent salt is a good margin it won't be salty but you're gonna starve off enough bacteria if you're doing pickles you need five percent salt brine usually for pickles but yeah two percent salt by weight um and then you rub just doing that in front of the microphone in the end. Uh, rub the cabbage, breaks down the cell structure, which leaches out some of the water. Make sure it's pressed after one day, say. If it's not submerged, pour on distilled water. So either boiled water or just tap uh, decent water. Not No unchlorinated water is what we're looking for. Um, and then, yeah, just let it sit on your countertop for a, you know, a week to two weeks. Taste it after a week. Check it every day, see if there's any... any um, dodginess happen on the top so any moulds or any pellicle type formations and then yeah taste it and when you like it put it in the fridge and you're done 
it's pretty easy. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And the, the point to adding more water, if necessary, is, and I think this is obvious, uh, but might not be for people who are completely new to fermentation, it can't be exposed to air, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you want to do it in an aerobic environment. So um, lacto works best, or lab, we're calling it lab, we're keeping switch between lab and lacto. Lactobacillus bacteria works best uh, without the presence of oxygen, whereas acetobacter and gluconobacter do work better with, um, they need oxygen. So they'll feed off alcohol and produce uh, acetic acid, which is the same vinegar acid. Yeah, so if you want it tartar, leave the cap off for a day or two, shake it a bit, introduce some more air, and that will get it a bit more tart. But you shouldn't need to because lab lab does the stuff. Uh, yeah. Does its job. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what else looking down the road, uh, what other projects do you have in mind or any that you can share with us now that you're thinking about? Uh, so we talked... So I do a lot of stuff with Persephone now. They store my bottles and label my bottles and I have the kegs there and they've been really, really nice to me and super helpful and, and, and great. And what I'm thinking about doing next year is either booking things for them to grow or just... Oh, on their, they, at their farm. At their farm. Yeah, and then beautiful. we would probably co-brand and we'll do Persephone pickles or Persephone coastal culture fermented pickles and they can be just sitting in a big jar of them on the bar, sweet as nut, and then we'll have jars to go. Um... They did have garlic scapes. I was meant to be looking into their last run of garlic scapes. They still had some kicking around, so I was going to start fermenting them just as a test run. Um, and yeah, just so the whole pickling thing. And I think Persephone. I think we're going to be quite closely intertwined. What about meats? Do you work at all in fermentation and meat products? And the the one that comes to mind that I've seen used in restaurants. I've never worked with it. Is koji? Yeah. And people doing you know koji as a as a way to jumpstart a dry age or mimic a dry aged steak that kind of thing. No, I've not touched koji. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's getting uh, yeah. I would like to. I've got a friend that's got um, some asporales spores, and he's been doing a little bit. But yeah, I've not. He's, I think he started making making some miso, so that'll be ready in many, many months or even a year. But no, I read the, the the Noma book on fermentation, which was kind of started this whole thing, I think. Got right into that, and I was, like, I was just thinking about doing a vinegar company. So that might be another thing. I actually forgot about that until right now. Vinegars might be a part of it. And it'd be fun vinegars, so like celery juice vinegar. So instead of using wines, uh, wines and other alcohol products, I'll put the alcohol into fruit juices or vegetable juices and make like a beet vinegar which would be pretty cool but that's kind of gone by the wayside because I'm pretty busy with the other stuff so maybe if we get some staff and some better premises then maybe in a year or two we'll see social culture vinegars all right well keep my eyes peeled yeah well let's let's move backward in time now paul to because as you say you've you've had experience with fermentation in in restaurants over your career maybe walk us through quickly how did how did you get into cooking and and where did where did you start and how did you uh, progress i started years ago when i was 15 uh still in high school a local hotel it was like the best hotel. Basically, I decided I wanted to be a cook, and I sent off a bunch of letters to all the local hotels, and this one got back to me, and turns out it was the best one around. So in England, we have a thing called rosettes. So like three to four rosettes would be a Michelin star. This was a two-rosette place, so it was pretty good. Uh, pretty good. And whereabouts standard. in England, uh, So it was in the south coast. It's a place called Battle, like Battle of Hastings is basically where it is, uh, or where that was. Yeah, nice little hotel. Learned a lot. Worked under two pretty good chefs. Uh, from there, went... Another restaurant here, I went to work at a Midsummer House in Cambridge for a little bit, which was a currently one star. It's now got two stars. That was crazy at 18, working 
18 or 16, 14 to 16 hours a day and getting berated every day. Didn't last that long, but learned a lot in a sport. short period of time. I was in the pastry. I went traveling for a year, worked a little bit in Australia. Went back to where I trained because I had no money, and then I've heard that I've heard that the kitchen scene in England is uh, as as you describe. Yeah, quite yeah, insane. Yeah, I've yeah. got a buddy who did a a two month stage at a two star restaurant in London. Uh, the name escapes me at the moment, but he was he was saying he was working like nineteen hour days. Yes, and they and they, they offered him a six month contract at the end of it. And he said no thanks. Yeah, so I went to like uh, like there. I remember one day I messed something up. And the chef absolutely uh, lost it on me. And then proceeded to be like, okay, well, tonight we're going to practice, we're going to try proofing the bread overnight. So it was, music got out one o'clock in the morning. So one o'clock in the morning, I went down to the other kitchen, made my breads, wait for, for, to first proof, second proof, put them in the fridge, went home, got my hour, hour and a half sleep, went back to work, and then he pulls them out of the fridge sticks his finger in every single one yeah we can't prove him in the fridge overnight it was purely just to be a nasty person let's say that so that was that was pretty harsh um, I think they've changed now like he's since then apologised for how he behaved back then interesting um, and he's quite a big like he's on TV and stuff in England now he's, he's done a lot and he's yeah he's like oh sorry I was not a nice person let's say that he didn't use those words but I was not a nice person back then um, I think the kitchen every kitchen I think worldwide not just in England just here as well I'm sure but you kind of learn it makes you learn to a point but I think now it has changed and it needs to change and it's not sustainable especially with this next generation that are much more open-minded and open-eyed and know a lot more about the world but when I was a training to be a cook it was like yes chef head down you know if a pan got thrown at you a pan got thrown at you that's just how it was now like I don't think you can get away with that and with the complete chef shortage worldwide, people are doing whatever they can. So there's a guy in England, Sat Bands, he's gone down to a four-day work week. They only work four days a week. They do 12 hours a day, four days a week, so they get their three days off. Uh, so he only opens his restaurant four days, and that's purely because of staff. It's definitely something that needs to change, and it is changing. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. What are your thoughts on restaurant economics? Because I know you've been a restaurant owner as well as a chef. And this notion of trying restaurants competing to attract staff is one big problem. Another is that they can only pay them so much, it seems yeah. to me, because the restaurant margins are incredibly razor thin. Yeah. So it's encouraging to see some changes in the attitude of head chefs and restaurant owners toward their staff. That four-day work week is a great idea. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't uh, heard of that. But do you have any thoughts on, on the sustainability of the of the business going forward? In other words, what needs to change so that we can continue to have good food and interesting food and interesting restaurants? I think that people generally need to pay a little bit more for the service they're provided when they go to a restaurant and they need to not expect a... If you're expecting an eggs penny for eight bucks, then you should not be eating at a restaurant. Like, if you... like or a restaurant of any calibre I guess because you're not eating good food so why would you ingest it like it's just not going to be good for eight dollars they're going to be using bad products uh, or bad produce or things that are cheap I prefer to go to a restaurant that you know supports local uses free range when possible that kind of ethos uh, and to do that you need to spend more money and to have people you know some restaurants will have the one that works in like the the one star place we had I think 12 or 14 cooks and the restaurant sat 23 24 people so it was you know it's almost 
two guests to every cook, which is completely unsustainable, especially in this day and age. And in Vancouver, with the rents, it's, I don't even know how. How I read a post from Trevor Bird recently about rents and how it's just getting to the point where it's unsustainable. So yeah, it's just yeah, I, people need to spend more money on their food. Go out less. Like if you went out less, so instead of going out three times a month, you go out once a month, but in, you spend a bit more, you know. But then that's going to make restaurants less busy. So cats twenty two, right? Yeah. Who knows what the answer is? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a it's a tough nut to crack, isn't it? Because um, we're seeing constantly restaurants struggling, restaurants yeah. closing, and yeah, to your point, the Vancouver scene is and good ones and good ones, really this good is, ones in Vancouver just yeah. closing recently. All right. Well, on that happy topic, yeah. <laughs> on that happy note. <laughs> it's not Let's, that bleak it'll be fine it'll be fine yeah yeah let's talk about what people can do if they're not eating out you've got a lot of experience from you know from the restaurant side from the kitchen side what would you recommend whether it's an ingredient or a technique what can people do at home to improve their their own cooking game uh i'm a great believer in cv cooking which i did a lot I wouldn't have been able to sustain, sustain my restaurant without cooking sous vide, um, just because it was only me in the kitchen, so it made things a lot easier in the kitchen and a lot more consistent. So, yeah, if you can afford a circulator and a, a little vat pack machine, or you can just do it with a Ziploc bag, there's lots of information on the internet. Yeah, I think that's, like, it's non-fail. Like, if you don't know how to cook a steak, or you don't like all your chickens always dry, if you buy yourself a circulator, takes a little bit longer but you can chuck it in and forget about it and you'll always have a perfectly cooked anything and these days the the circulators are getting really quite reasonable right yeah. like i think bought, i bought mine a couple of years ago for 100 bucks yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah which is great yeah, great. yeah it's a cheap investment <laughs> tell the listeners if you would paul but we were talking this about this before we started recording and this is on the value proposition of restaurants and on thin margins and on what people are willing to pay but you ran an interesting experiment when you had Nova Kitchen here yeah. in Gibson's, which was, well, please tell us, it was a pay yeah, what so you want model. Yeah, uh, yeah, pay what you think it's worth. Okay. Pay, what you, pay what you want, yeah. pay what you think it's worth. So it was just. Yeah, that's a better phrase. <laughs> I heard a lot of from people that know Nova Kitchen was expensive for the coast and all that sort of jazz. I got told it was super expensive and, and whatnot, well, not super expensive, but not cheap enough for the coast. So I ran an experiment in January, which is the deadest season of any restaurant. Um, to try and get some bums in seats and that was to do pay what you think it's worth it astounded me that the fact that we were pretty much full every night and every I'd say 80% of the customers paid over or within a dollar or two of anything I had on the menu um, some people weren't comfortable and we had menus where you could just pay what you would pay usually you charge would, yeah. but yeah most of the people paid you know usually within a dollar or two and it was usually over for most items and that was great from a chef's and entrepreneur's point of view is that I'm not too expensive. People will pay this money for quality of food. So I think maybe those people that said it was expensive and never actually experienced it would be my guess. And they just saw the menu online and were like, oh, it's super expensive. We're not going to go. So but yeah, you need to support your local restaurants because there's a lot of good ones in the food scene, I think, in the last... I don't know, when did I sell? Two years ago. So before that, <laughs> so I call myself part of it. Um, it's really, really abounded in... in uh, Gibson's especially but also in Seashell you know and it's definitely there's there's more more places to eat and a better calibre now so we need to support them because it is very tight you know to get people in the seat especially in the winter on here it's, it's dead time so you know if you want to go keep the restaurants you've got to you've got to use them I love it okay 
Um, and final point, where can my listeners find you? Where can they uh, learn more about uh, what you're doing with Coastal Cultures? Uh, so the website, Instagram, Facebook, uh, at Coastal Cultures. And then we've got products in varied places. So you can find cocktails at Bruno's usually. We've got some at Smitty's. We've got it at the Butcher Shop, Daily Roast and Seashell. Yes, we're up and down the coast and drink some kefir. It makes you feel good. Fantastic. Well, listen, Paul, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Paul, very much for meeting up at the bakery and for a great talk. And my thanks as well for the water kefir and the sauerkraut, too. They are definitely delicious. All right. Next interview now, you're about to hear from Nick Ferrer of Bricker Cider. This was also a really fun talk. Nick and I got together in the tasting room at Bricker's at the Cidery and had a really good discussion along with a few samples of some very delicious cider. So you'll hear Nick talk about how Bricker's is a family business. He's going to explain who Grandma Anne is and she was an inspiration to the family to do something with all of the apples that their farm property was producing. You'll hear Nick talk about just where cider fits into the beverage market in Canada, which is quite different from some other countries. And, of course, we get into the process of making cider, too. We have a really interesting talk about commercial yeasts and wild yeasts and wild ferments, different approaches to making cider, and we get into the topic of terroir, how individual components of a cider that are representative of the place they come from. So ciders definitely like wines, like beers, like sourdough, in my opinion, and as you'll hear me say in the interview today, can have a terroir to them. We talk about the family business, we talk about Nick's goals and the other owner's goals for Brickers going forward, and then we have a talk about, again, more global economic issues and how that's affecting small business in our little part of the world in the Sunshine Coast of BC. Nick's got some really interesting thoughts on how property pricing is driving similar happenings around the world. So Vancouver property prices are high, people retreat to the Sunshine Coast, similar things are happening in Australia, in Sydney, similar things are happening in Germany. It's just an interesting factor in the restaurant, in the beverage production industry these days. So you'll hear that talk as well. And you're going to hear me going on and on about how delicious some of these ciders are that I tasted. Again, a really fun talk. Nick, thanks so much for having me. Let's go now to the tasting room at Bricker's Cider. Here's my talk with Nick Ferrer. Well, here we are. I'm looking out from the tasting room at Bricker's Cider on a beautiful Saturday morning. Nick, thanks very much for hosting me, and, and thanks for being on Chef Timoni. Thank you very much for being here. It's wonderful. It's a great way to start the day. Mm-hmm. Beautiful winter morning. Well, let's talk uh, in broad terms before we get down to, and uh, people can't see me pointing at the cider samples we've got here that I'm already starting to sample, and I want to talk to you about each of these. But just tell us in bigger terms, what is Bricker's all about? I know on your website you've got a mission, so so tell us about the, the mission, the idea behind Bricker's. Yeah, the mission for us really was, uh, and I say us, um, was to set up a, a family business so that we could all be employed on the Sunshine Coast. We all wanted to live here, but the situation tends to be on the Sunshine Coast that if you want to earn a reasonable income, you either have to be a public servant, a doctor, or, you know, a professor, you know, lawyer, reasonably well-paid position, 
or you have to own your own business. Right, right. And so or just, commute back and forth to the city. <laughs> or commute back and forth to the city. Yeah. That's true. And uh, so we decided we wanted to do our own business. And so um, the business idea originally was started because uh, the family property, which is just up the road, is 11 acres. There's two acres of uh, old heritage apple trees on the property. And... Um, my wife's grandmother and she originally lived on the property and she used to tell all the grandchildren they need to be making something with those apples be it cider or apple pies and selling them the apples just used to go to waste or in fact they were bare food really wow so uh eventually when we decided we wanted to do a business everything kind of melded together and realized okay we've got these apples you know, we should use the inspiration from grandma to, to do a business. The pro- this property we're on now is just down the road, came up for sale just at the right time. And uh, I was already working in the brewing industry anyway, so I already had some skills making alcohol. So everything kind of melded together. And when you say grandma, is this Grandma Anne? That's- it is, Okay. Yeah. And if that's her right there, actually oh, next oh, to you. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, her maiden name was Bricker. Um, she married Fred Moore when they were quite young, so the family name now was Moore, but uh, yeah, she was originally Anne Bricker. Yeah. Okay. So we named the company after her. Fair enough. What a wonderful inspiration. Yeah. And it's a five-acre farm. Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah, five-acre farm. And you are telling me about some of the, the trees when we were standing outside earlier. Maybe just walk us through in, in general terms how the, how the farm operates, what you're producing here. Yeah, we've got um, three acres of apple trees on the property here. We planted those. The first 500 uh, were done in 2015 and incorrect, sorry, 2016. But uh, and then every year we add to them, money and time dependent. And then um, so we've been eventually we'd like to have about 3,000 trees out there. Wow, yeah. <laughs> and then my father in law's property uh, up the road there that's just 100 trees, but they're big established old trees. And then we also have five acres in the interior that um, a farmer farms for us that we use all the apples from, and that's our apple source. Okay, and the interior, so that is that uh, Okanagan? Or? It's actually in the Thompson Valley, Okay, it's almost the Okanagan, yeah. Yeah, okay. And what about the other ingredients beyond the apples? And we're going to walk through a few of the ciders mm. here in a minute, but uh, what, what other ingredients are you using and where are you sourcing them? Going back to originally, we were talking about uh, regulation earlier. In fact, <laughs> as, a, as a winery, because we're classed as a winery, uh, there's no actual cider um, designation. In BC, uh, you have to use all BC product. Ah. So we are, not that I'm saying it holds us back, but it, you know, we're encouraged to use BC product. And so therefore, it, we tend to be making things. If we add anything, it's obviously kind of a, a temperate fruits as well. So we have a raspberry cider. We have a few pear trees but not lots so we'll often buy pears or pear juice in the cranberry one we've got on right now and so yeah using things that tend you tend to think of typically in in uh, bc we have a peach one in the summer right as well right okay tell me about the about the fermentation process because one of the two people who recommended that i speak to you is uh, paul haldane mm-hmm. from coastal cultures mm-hmm. And he was saying, you're going to have an all English accent show, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) But I was talking to him about uh, his water kefir and and just the fermentation process generally. I don't know anything about making cider. Can Can you explain the very basics to us? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, so the traditional 
I guess originally how cider was originally made, and I'm kind of guessing, but people would have pressed some apples, thinking of apple juice, and then they would have probably left it. Uh, the wild yeast that is all around us, we have yeast around us all the time, would have got into the apple juice and started fermenting that apple juice and eventually taking those sugars that are in the apple juice, turning that into alcohol. So that's, that is that technique, not quite to the extent of being in a bucket, but <laughs> right. that technique is still kind of done nowadays and people, we tend to call it wild fermentations. And there's a few, a few cideries in BC doing that, some excellent, excellent ones making amazing cider. The... I guess the problem with that coming from a business standpoint is that it takes a very long time. Right. Um, because yeah. you're looking for millions of cells. Uh, when you do a wild ferment, you're probably looking at a thousand or a hundred cells starting off. Those cells do then replicate. But then, so a, a wild ferment will take three to four months. Okay. Um, right. And then you're taking up that tank space for three to four months. So um, we would love to do more wild ferments. We only have four fermenters and we would would not be sitting here now if we did all our wild ferments because we just wouldn't have enough cider to make a living from. So we use a, a lab-made yeast. It's a Saccharomyces yeast, which is a typical alcohol-making yeast. Uh, it's a wine hybrid one that's been made in a lab, made specifically for cider, but just on a twist from wine. So our, our cider does have quite a wine taste to it. And, yeah, we occasionally do a wild do a wild ferment here or there we've got our first full wild ferment cider coming out next month but uh, our sun coaster is partly wild fermented so the sun coaster is just sunshine coast apples and we've used some of those used the wild yeast that was on those apples to ferment for about a month and then we did finish it off with our wine yeast because we needed <laughs> we needed the cider yeah we needed the cider and uh, but it's nice to think that with the sun coaster as well then there's that kind of as well as the apples being from the coast, the yeast itself sort of imparts some sort of terroir on the uh, on the cider as well. Right, right. I'm thinking it's it's quite similar to uh, sourdough bread, which we were talking about mm. earlier, and um, which I love to make just just as a hobby. But the time is quite remarkable. How long it takes, right? From yeah. the time you build, get the starter active, to building the leaven to uh, the bulk fermentation to the overnight in the fridge it's kind of a 48 hour process yeah. at, at a minimum right but fun to tinker with yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and, and you do get some interesting flavors and yeah. to your point about terroir it's it's neat to taste sourdough breads in different places because they yeah. taste different because presumably the yeasts are different absolutely right? yeah. yeah the one the one thing um so if you're going down the line of wild ferments of course then every year your cider will probably taste a little different because the yeast will be just different that, that are in the area. We, coming from a, a brewing background, I was kind of quite keen to have some, rep, i say the word right here, replicability. Yes. Um, yeah. Because uh, that is obviously quite a big thing with, um, with beer. You want to pick up a beer and know that the beer you're trying now is the same beer you tried last year and the year before that. And so I was keen to have that. When, so we do do some wild ferments, uh, as I said, but then that's more to do with our special special ciders and not so much our core ones. And that's almost, it's, in, it's an interesting um, market, the cider market here in BC and in Canada because I'm from the UK and the UK very much is, has the cider market ingrained in its culture and it has a position in the alcohol industry. It's still finding its way here a lot in Canada and... Um, some people will align it more to being a wine, bottling it in a wine bottle, 
and just marketing it towards say a wine and some fantastic cideries doing some amazing cider that way and then some people want to align it more towards a beer something maybe slightly lower alcohol the packaging maybe more like a beer packaging cans etc and so it's it's funny how we how we where we want to be really and we even us i don't think we've still found our position necessarily i coming from beer i was keen to be more towards the beer side but uh we're still quite happy to be doing the wine style thing as well because uh we have that flexibility when we have the wild ferment yeah terrific let's start moving through the ones that uh you, you've told us about the the sun coast which i'm just going to finish off mm. and for the record because this is audio these are very tiny little glasses <laughs> <laughs> but i am delighted to be uh, to be sampling them and moving on now this is uh the h on my tasting menu <laughs> so that's the hopped cider is that right yeah so the last few years especially i guess with the the boom of craft beer has influenced cider as well and that uh, hops going into cider has become quite popular again coming from beer i was always keen to do a hopped cider and what we do is we dry hop it so um, if people don't know too much about beer um, how beer is made beer you use hops twice so you use it in the boiling process that extracts bitterness from the hops and then you use it after it's finished fermenting at a lower temperature and that extracts the oils which gives it the nice aromas and the flavors um, so we just do the later bit we only do the flavors and the aromas so there's no bitterness that comes through um, and depending on which hop you use you get different flavors we use a hop called comet hops which has a lot of uh, grapefruit um, citrus notes um, some people even say a touch of ginger in there as well hmm. yeah it's delicious. It's reminding me of an IPA, which I guess makes sense, mm-hmm. right, for the hoppiness. And when you said grapefruit, that came through too. Yeah. Yeah. I, d- I kind of put it about a third of the way to a, to a beer, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not halfway. Not halfway. <laughs> <laughs> Defending the honor of cider That's here. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to put that back and come back to it and move along the line to the christmas brew tell us about this yeah one. so we brought this out just for uh, december and we're still uh, still got a few cases left cranberry and hops so uh, cranberries being a, a big uh, fruit grown in bc of course down in the in the fraser valley in the delta originally i wanted to do cranberry and orange now of course as i said before we can only use fruit grown in bc and we're not a big orange <laughs> not a big orange producer <laughs> province so uh okay how how else can we we make an orange flavor well there's lots of flavors coming out of hops now hops uh, don't count as far as um having to be grown in bc uh, they count as a flavoring bizarrely but uh we use the hop called mandarina hops. So mandarina hops have a lot of bitter orange flavor. Um, so we used uh, some of those in there to effectively synthesize almost the, uh, the orange. Mimic an orange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's worked. So, so uh, cranberry and hops or cranberry and orange, really. But uh, really happy with that one. It's been very popular. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to come back to that too. But let's finish up the, the menu here. This is the, the brett. Yeah, so um, as I said before, the, the yeast... Tend to be that tends to be used when uh, making alcohol nowadays is Saccharomyces yeast. I think it's rumor. I don't know if it's necessarily true, but apparently one of the first ever yeast that was used to make alcohol actually was Britannomyces yeast. So it's a different type of yeast, and there are strains of each each of one of those. 
but uh, it gives a lot different flavor. So we use Britannomyces in this cider. We actually fermented the cider normally, and then we put it into barrels with Britannomyces yeast as well. So then the Britannomyces just changed that. His nickname is Brett. So if you hear about Brett beers or Brett ciders. Right, right. Um, yes, I have. Okay, that makes sense now. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we put some Brett yeast into, the, into these barrels. So it was aging in some spirit barrels for six months, and then the Brett was also doing its thing in there. So is it actually fermenting? in the barrel it's yeah. going through like, like a secondary fermentation. exactly that yeah okay. yeah secondary fermentation so uh, it will take any uh, extra sugars that were left over there residual sugars and ferment those um do its thing you get a lot uh, i find a lot of dark cherry um mm-hmm. big mouthfeel very smooth it is um, yes it's quite it's um viscous yeah is the, is the word. <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. and that's and that's literally the brett coming through and some of the tannins um, giving you some more body from the, from the barrels. Mm-hmm. Okay. And where do these uh, fall? This, this has a bigger mouthfeel. Mm. Is, is it a higher alcohol content as well? or is It, it is, yeah, yeah. It's a little higher. It's around okay. seven. Okay. The, the rest of ours tend to drop between five and six and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one's a little bit higher. Yeah. Okay. What are you finding the reaction both on the Sunshine Coast and maybe your experience within Canada, but I'd like to get some more of your thoughts on that, on, on how people are reacting to a dedicated cider producer here on the Sunshine Coast. The reception from the people I've talked to has been very positive, but I also know that you're, um, you're dealing with a market, as you say, that's not really accustomed to cider or it yeah. hasn't been around or part of the culture for as long. And, and I see that you've got uh, one beer on tap too, so you want to accommodate people who have different tastes. Anyway, yeah. how has it been building the business here? It's, it's actually been really fun because one of the biggest things I enjoy most is, is the educational part of it, actually. So um, a lot of people will come in here and they would have just tried Growers or Okanagan Cider, which unfortunately is had the name Cider put on it. Like we, we like to do in Europe, it tends to be a lot of regulation for using words. And Cider in the UK, I can't remember the exact number, but to use the word Cider on a... On a packaging has to be i think around 85 or 90 percent apples at the start of fermentation okay uh, unfortunately in north america or canada doesn't have that regulation so people could use anything vaguely apple based and and slap the word cider on it so uh, from what i believe some of those other really sickly sweet ones are about five percent apples and the rest is just sort of sugar and flavoring <laughs> which is why it gives you a horrific hangover as well. <laughs> the following day, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, all that refined sugar. So uh, a lot of people come in here who've just been drinking that, or maybe some more of the big, big brands, the Strongbow type thing. And um, it's fun trying to educate people and, and tell them. I think most people are receptive to it. The, the craft beer boom has really helped us in, sure. make, in opening people's minds. Yes, um, and we, I, I do think we came into it just at the right time. So. You know, the start of the craft beer boom, people were all, oh, no, I can't have anything more than the lager. And now, but that had developed so that people's minds were opening to trying new things. And then when we came along with a, a drink that wasn't necessarily something they'd tried before, they were willing to try it. Mm-hmm. Even on the Sunshine Coast, which traditionally is a little bit more behind everywhere else. But we had <laughs> Persephone, uh, Persephone in, in Gibson's, you know, kind of leading the charge for uh, right. I think, uh, six or seven years going now, so. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting, the coast, isn't it? As, as I was saying to you earlier before we started recording, my wife and I have lived here full-time full for two years, and she's been 
part of the community for more like five. But it's it's changing, isn't it? And in, in many ways, I think there may be some resistance to the changes yes. uh, from the longstanding locals. But i got to say, as one of the newcomers, I'm all for them. So we now <laughs> have craft beer. We've got brilliant cider. The restaurant scene is exploding. Yeah. So... Yeah, yeah. it's... Um, I guess that's just the way... Almost the Western world, I feel like, is going now. And my, uh, although I'm English, my sister's married to an Australian, lives in Australia. Same thing happening there. Uh, they're living in a small town and on the outside of Sydney. And Sydney in a very similar position like where we are to Vancouver. And so people were moving out of the city. They can't afford a, sure. a house there, so moving to the... And uh, similar things happening. Breweries, cideries, wineries, restaurants booming. And other friends I've I've got also in, you know, in Germany and, and uh, other countries um, across sort of the Western world. Same thing happening. Yeah. I, I think it's it's all kind of property driven. It's bizarre, but yeah, it's, right, yeah. right. Uh, property driven in in what sense? Like the pricing. the pricing, yeah. yeah, the need, to, right? Yeah. So whatever is happening in cities very quickly after is going to be happening in smaller places inevitably yeah do you think this is a comment that i got from kelsey jones in an interview a few months ago and she's the wine director at uh, shambar restaurant in in vancouver and it was wonderful to talk to her because she knows everything about wine which Mm -hmm. is something i'm interested in but know virtually nothing about except you know what i like when somebody (laughs) hands me a glass but what amazed me was that she is, I can't remember exactly how old she is, but she's definitely under 30, which to me is extremely young. Yeah. Yet she's the wine director of yeah. this very wonderful, big, established restaurant. And I said something to, these, to the effect of, how is that possible? You're so young, but how, you've obviously got this knowledge. How do you acquire that? And she said that the, basically the internet has been the A-changing factor, right? Mm. Whereas... 20, 30 years ago, you would have to apprentice, go to the library. The information just wasn't there. Whereas now, it's accessible to everybody. So that's a long, rambling introduction to a question, which is, have you found that to be of help? And do you use that? I imagine you would. Like, are you connecting with other cider producers here, there, and everywhere? Because it's seamless. Quick answer is yes. Yeah. Really. Okay, um, <laughs> I do. I use. I definitely use the uh, internet and and social media just keeping in contact with or even just watching other other people i guess you know we're fairly well regulated here in uh, in bc the states tends to be a little less so and so they're they tend to have the mindset of being a little bit more open to just trying different stuff so i do follow quite a few cider businesses in the states on the opposite end of that of course being from england if you were to put just some raspberries in, in a <laughs> cider in England, you'd get kicked out. Right. So, <laughs> get a phone call from the Queen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I've seen both ends of the spectrum. But um, I, I love the openness, especially in North America, of happily trying something new. You know, it can be very restrictive in Europe. I mean, you know, you look in Germany with the beer and they have the Reinheitsgebot, which is the German, uh, the beer purity law. Oh, right. Says you can only 15, use... 15, 16, you can only use it. Four, yeah. four ingredients, right? That's it. Yeah. To the extent where the brewery I used to work at used to export beer to Germany, which I found crazy that Canadian beer is going to Germany. But it's because that had the... I think we sent some passion fruit beer, right? You couldn't put passion fruits in Germany. But yeah, I do keep in contact with a lot of the the American ones. Yeah, I think there's there's always a bit of a joke going that Seattle's five years behind Portland and Vancouver's five years behind Seattle, right? So if you can keep in contact with what's going on down in Portland, then uh, then you're kind of ahead of the curve. You know, you know what's coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, on this topic of regulation, this is something that, that I'm starting to explore on the show. And I've asked a few people about it, but maybe tell me about the change that's happened, I think, fairly recently in terms of the tasting room experience and enjoying a cider in in what I'll call the front yard, the, the, yeah. uh, the where the picnic tables are set up. Because I understand that was not as simple a process as, as people might, uh, might no, think. No, no. Uh, when we opened, we, were, uh, we had a tasting room license. So what we originally have is a manufacturing license, a license to make cider, uh, in fact, to make wine of any type. And we chose to use apple juice, uh, which makes cider. And with that comes a tasting room license. Unfortunately, that meant we could only serve literally like what you've just had there. People to come in and taste it. Um, if you wanted any more, then you would have to either basically buy some and take some, take some away. You couldn't have any more here. So we've uh, just, I think it was only December, 10th of December, I think we got what's called a lounge endorsement, which allows us to be more of a lounge. People can come in. Um, again, try everything we've got, but they can then say, oh, I like that one. I'll have a glass of that. Right, um, and it's as, about, about as as crazy as that. It just <laughs> it only took eleven months for that to come for through, that to come, in, including a public hearing before the Seashell Town Council, was it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And there, everything, uh, if you're applying for a lounge across across the province, uh, there has to be public input on that. On that, so uh, that was part of that. But uh, yeah, it just, especially for, in the winter for us, um, up and so uh, up until now. Or up until December the 10th, people were still able to drink outside because they were allowed to drink an off-sale. So they could buy a bottle okay, uh, and drink and, it outside. But you previously couldn't open that bottle and pour it into a glass for them? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So they could have to take their, buy their hair and go out there. And, and that's great in the summer, of course. Um, everyone wants to be outside. But in the winter... People are here for 10 minutes, they try the ciders and, and away they go. And you know, we want people to stay around and, and, and enjoy it here. So it's going to be really good for us in the winter. Tell us about the family nature of the operation. How many family members do you have working at Brickers? And Because what prompted that question was your comment, we want people to stay here. And that's, that's the sense I get. You want to build a community here. And even your website says, I think, something like, Children and dogs are always welcome. Oh, yeah. So it's yeah. yeah. So it's got a very in nice that order. in that in that order. <laughs> it's got a very nice welcoming feel to it. So maybe just tell us a bit more about who who's involved. Yeah. yeah. So uh, essentially, as far as uh, ownership, there's five owners. So there's uh, myself and my wife, her two brothers, and then uh, their dad. And so Chris was the son of Anne, the Anne Bricker originally. Chris. Uh, we call El Presidente. He's just sort of the figurehead guy who comes and helps drink uh, drink the cider. Uh, <laughs> but he does help out here and there where he can. I'm myself the general manager, general dog's body, and um, tend to... Uh, I started off, it was just... Originally, I was just the only full-time employee. Um, so I was doing the lot, making the cider, delivering the cider, um, doing all the background stuff. And then finally, we were able to uh, bring on my brother-in-law, Russell, uh, Russell is now, he's effectively the cider maker, um, and he's also uh, deals with a lot of the mechanical issues we have here. Um, the other, my other brother-in-law, Bronson, he does all of our sales on the Sunshine Coast. And then uh, my wife does all the back-end stuff, which is great, the, uh, all the invoicing and the reporting to the government, which is considerable. So yeah, everyone's involved, and uh, something we would love is down the line is to pass it on to the next generation 
Uh, we've all had children in the last four years, so uh, that'd be great to sort of make it three generations. Absolutely. Yeah. Are any of the kids old enough to help out yet? <laughs> Uh, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> my son's the eldest. He's three and a half. And he likes to he likes to pick up glasses and help people, but generally he breaks more than he. <laughs> than he <laughs> not yet a, a, a net uh, financial asset. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about any upcoming ciders that you like? What have you? What are you thinking about? What are you hoping to make next? Or what's on the what's yeah. on the planning sheet? Well, in fact, uh, I was a little bit behind the curve uh, in 2019, but uh, so I've just finished a, really at the, uh, the turn of the year about what we were going to make in 2020. I was procrastinating for quite a long time and wondering whether we should simplify things and make less. I think uh, as far as specialty side as this, sh- sorry, 2019, we made uh, about 15 different ones. And, and I was thinking, let's simplify it, make it life a bit easier. And then I'm coming up with all these ideas, thinking, oh, that would be fun, that would be fun. And so now it's transpired, we're going to do 24 <laughs> this year. <laughs> a, nice, a nice reduction from 15. <laughs> so um, I've really got into the barrel aging thing. Um, you get lots of interesting flavors coming out. You can't control it. You're just going to get whatever comes out of the barrel. But uh, So in fact, just this morning before you got here, I was... Um, transferring some pear cider that we'd had sitting in barrels for two months that are chardonnay barrels um so we've uh, just moving that into our packaging tank which we're going to be packaging on tuesday so that's the next one coming up there what, what's going to be the name of it pear cider <laughs> bold <laughs> yeah yeah i wasn't uh, i mean the traditional name for a 100 percent pear beverage is perry oh. um, but it has to be uh, well, probably not here, but you know, traditionally it has to be 100% pears, whereas this is a blend. But we have got Sunshine Coast pears in there. And um, yeah, then the next thing we're doing, uh, in fact, I know you've uh, spoken to Jenna and Jacob from uh, Lone Wolf Bakery, but uh, I was approached by Kyle, from, um, who's their coffee roaster. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to do a collaboration where effectively try and make a stout tasting cider. Wow. Yeah. So using, uh, using some coffee, roasted coffee, uh, using some cacao nibs, and they're almost trying to synthesize the flavor of a stout, but in a cider. But in a cider. So yeah. will it still have an apple component to it? It will, is it, yeah. Is, okay. So, so the base will still be 100% apples. Yeah. Tend to, if it, you tend to, if you ferment a little cooler, you don't get quite as much uh, of the apple phenolics and esters coming out. So you'll, you'll just, I'll make sure it's a little more subtle on the apple side. And then, yeah, we, we were literally just two days ago just testing different uh, coffees and putting different amounts in in the cider. And, uh, uh, yeah, we're going to see what, how that comes out. Fun. Should be pretty fun. And, again, yeah. and that's come from following people in the States. Right, okay. I don't, think, I don't believe anyone in Canada has done a, a coffee or coffee, cider with a coffee in it yet. Fun. Well, I'll look forward to that. And that leads into my next question, which is, what would you say about food pairings with cider? So... The stout one, I'm already thinking we're in the winter season. I can yeah. see like a nice braised piece of beef or a you know, yeah. pot of fur or something. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the stereotypical thing is people got, often go to is what you would tend to use with the white wine. And they do work. They work really well with you know, those kind of things. Your cheeses, your fish, your white meats. And yet, I still feel like this, some of the things we make and, and other, other great ciders work well with dark meats if you look at the Scandinavian kind of foods where they love to pair 
uh, kind of a fruit-based coolie type thing with on their on their meat on their dark meat. You know, um, I know a friend of mine has, has braised, um, I think it was beef with our frambo, the raspberry cider, and said it was delicious. Would be, yeah. So yeah, they, it does work with those. The stout one, I think, I think you're right. Yeah, that would go really well. And and the barrel age ones, often they can lend themselves starting to go towards uh, darker meats, slightly more rich foods, rather than keeping it on the lighter side with your typical white wine pairings. Good. Okay, I've got some experimentation to do. Yeah. <laughs> where Nick, where are your ciders available? What is the distribution for Brickers looking like these days? Uh, we're actually in about 150 different places now. Wow. Uh, all on the lo- here in the lower mainland. Not really on the island yet, unfortunately, when we involve two ferries. Um, that's a lot of uh, distribution costs. Yes, and it's a heavy product yeah. in glass bottles. It is, yeah. yeah. So um, we, uh, there are a couple of places we are for sale in in Victoria, uh, mainly because the people are from, who run those businesses are from Seashell. Okay, <laughs> and, they wanted, and they wanted to have their product, our product there. But other than that, yeah, um, mostly downtown, uh, Sea to Sky corridor, and then as you go out down the Fraser Valley, it gets less and less as we get down towards. I don't think we're in Chilliwack or anywhere down there yet. So okay, yeah. and and what's the what's the goal long long term? Would you like to be selling across Canada? Would you like to be exporting to Germany? <laughs> uh, no, is the quick answer. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, Personally, and you would have to ask the other four owners, they might have different opinions. My personal opinion, and I think they agree, we want to kind of get to a size where we are all employed uh, full-time, not necessarily uh, Chris, uh, my father-in-law, or uh, Bronson, my brother-in-law, but he's happy to work part-time. But uh, my wife does everything free of charge at the moment. We would love to bring her on as a full-time employee. So there'd be three family members full-time, um, maybe give ourselves a bit of a pay rise. <laughs> yes, would be nice. Uh, yeah. Rather than, you know, yeah, we're not working for much right now, as most business owners do when they first start. First start, yeah. And then, basically, if we're happy, do that and just tap out of that. And just keep it, yeah, I, I love mean, that. We moved to, lived in the Sunshine Coast for a reason, right? We don't, right. <clears throat> don't want to be, you know, going 100 miles an hour all the time and live in the rat race. No. We do that in the city if we wanted to do that. So... For me, I think I think five years was always our goal. We're coming up for three years now, so but at the end of five years, if we can have, have got to that point where we're uh, we're all employed and we're happy and and we kind of set ourselves the systems up where we can just uh, keep doing making good product, cycle to work, uh, you know, yes. walk to work because we all live locally, then that's perfect. Right. Yeah. And put your day in on a beautiful farm property. I love that goal. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. It's great. Well, Nick, thank you so much for taking the time. Where uh, I'll put a link to the website, of course. Where should people be looking to follow what you're doing? Uh, Instagram, website, where, what's the best place? Instagram's probably our heavy, heaviest uh, sort of connection, connecting place. Um, we're pretty good on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, do you have the website? Website's really good. I probably should update it more often than I do. Um, <laughs> a goal for us all in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Instagram, so at Brickers Cider, so Brickers with an S on the end, uh, at Brickers Cider is our handle. And then incidentally, slight side note, we're actually just in the in the process of uh, organizing a cider festival. Aha, uh-huh. yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So uh, April 25th is going to be at the Seashell Legion, and we've got almost 20 cideries from BC already confirmed, and it's going to run 
similar to the Gibson's Beer Festival, the, the Sunshine Coast one that Persephone organises. But rather than buying tickets, you basically pay a little bit more for your entry and then you don't buy tickets once you're in. So you do, the cideries effectively are donating their product um, and you can just go around and have smaller samples. But uh, I'm not going to say all you can drink. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of thing. And uh, it's actually going to be, we're calling it the Sunshine Coast Ciders and Sours Festival. Cause, so we're actually going to have a few breweries doing some sour beers. Some sour well. beers as well. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I went to my first ever... Uh, sour beer festival in Las Vegas. Cool. A couple of months ago, yeah, and it was it was great and eye opening. I had no idea there were that many sour beers oh, yeah. and that different. Yeah, yeah that different. And also uh, for for me as well, I wanted to involve the other breweries on the Sunshine Coast. We're uh, four breweries, almost five now, with Batch Forty Four opening in Seashell. So uh, try and get them involved as well. And ciders and sours do kind of marry quite well together. So yeah, it's going to be fun That's fun festival. Terrific. I think I will see you there April 25th. 5th. Wonderful. Okay, Nick, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Nick, so much for having me into the cidery before you were open for the day. Thank you for the delicious cider samples, and, and thank you for such an excellent talk. Thank you as well for joining me, as always, here for Cheftimony. It means a great deal to me that you choose to spend some time with me here on the podcast. As I always say, if you've got a few minutes, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a star rating for Cheftimony, or if you have a few more minutes, leave a written review for the show. You can do that at Apple Podcasts and many of the other directories. I'd really appreciate you doing either or both of those things. Doing them helps other people to find the show. I love to hear from you as well. It's how I find some of the very best guests for the show and get some great topic ideas. And just an interesting community is forming around Cheftimony, and I'm so grateful for it. So if you would like to be part of that and get in touch with me directly, please do. You can do that on social media, so Instagram, where I'm quite active, Twitter works, Facebook, now LinkedIn, you can find me there. I'm under Graham McLennan there, but on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, you'll find me under at Cheftimony. Or just send me a good old-fashioned email. You can do that to graham at Cheftimony.com. All right, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed the fermentation episode. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you next Friday right here on Cheftimony. Cheftimony.